It's Monday, March 28th. I'm Sarah Y. Kim. Governor Hogan, joined by House and Senate leaders, announced a more than $1 billion tax relief plan to help small businesses and keep retirees from leaving the state. Maryland's House and Senate leaders say they've come up with a revised congressional redistricting map after a judge threw out the one presented Friday, ruling it unconstitutional. Baltimore County will spend an extra $70 million to fix and replace dated schools. A Johns Hopkins project is using social media to gather global data on changing attitudes about health and well-being during the pandemic. And experts at the Bloomberg School of Public Health tell us where we are in the fight against COVID and what we can expect in the near future. It's the Daily Dose from WYPR, our latest reporting on Maryland's COVID-19 response and the local news of the day, made possible by GBMC Healthcare. Governor Larry Hogan, joined by House Speaker Adrian Jones and Senate President Bill Ferguson, announced today a plan to deliver $1.86 billion in tax relief for retirees, small businesses and low-income families over the next five years. The agreement also includes an $800 million investment in the Blueprint for Maryland's Future Education Initiative and will keep the Rainy Day Fund at a record high level. The surplus will fund things such as state hospitals, public safety programs, state facility and infrastructure maintenance, and protect against potential future cyber attacks. Three days after a Maryland judge threw out the congressional redistricting map the General Assembly adopted in December, Legislative leaders say they have a new map. Senate President Ferguson and House Speaker Jones released a joint statement today saying the new map will be introduced to the General Assembly and subject to a joint hearing at 8.30 a.m. tomorrow. That would meet the March 30th deadline set in Judge Lynn Battaglia's order. Jones and Ferguson said the bill is contingent on the loss of an appeal and they expect to have it on Governor Hogan's desk this week. Baltimore County announced today it plans to spend $70 million more than originally expected on fixing and replacing school buildings. While welcome news at those schools that will benefit, WYPR's John Lee reports the county still has a long way to go to meet the needs throughout the school system. After being entertained by the Scotts Branch Elementary School step machine, County Executive Johnny Oshevsky told students the additional money means the school in Windsor Mill, built more than 60 years ago, will be replaced, not just renovated. This is a $49 million investment in your future, one that you deserve. Other schools will benefit too, but a consultant says it will take $4.7 billion spent over 15 years to bring all county school buildings up to speed. The county's plans for school construction spending still falls far short of that. John Lee, WIPR News. The Maryland Department of the Environment is taking over Baltimore's Back River Wastewater Treatment in Dundalk over concerns of what officials call catastrophic failures at the facility. The action follows last week's report that showed widespread maintenance issues at the plant. The plant is the largest wastewater treatment facility in Maryland. Here's a unique take on who gets to decide what makes a fine art exhibit. The Baltimore Museum of Art has opened an exhibit that features artwork curated by security guards at the museum. Guarding the Art features more than two dozen artworks selected by members of the BMA's security force. 
giving a glimpse into the world of art as seen by the security team that is charged to watch over it. Guards participated in a two-year process to identify artwork, design the installation, and create content for a museum catalog. The exhibit will run through July 10th. It's been more than two years now since the World Health Organization declared COVID-19 a global pandemic. And the rest is history? Not quite. Health experts from the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health held a media briefing recently to share their thoughts on where we are exactly in this pandemic. What's next and what we should do to prepare? One sign the pandemic isn't quite over. Omicron BA2, a new COVID subvariant. Dr. Amber D'Souza, an infectious disease epidemiologist and professor of epidemiology at Bloomberg, says Omicron BA2 is 50 to 60 percent more transmissible than the Omicron variant that overwhelmed hospitals this past winter. It's not all doom and gloom, though. As we've mentioned on this podcast, there likely won't be another Omicron surge. The good news is that BA2 does not cause more severe illness than earlier strains, and does not appear to evade immune responses from COVID vaccination or prior infection. So we expect BA2 will lead to increased infections in the U.S. because it is more transmissible. But given the population immunity we have, we do not expect the surge in severe illness to be as large as that seen in previous years. Dr. Anna Durbin is the director of the Center for Immunization Research at Bloomberg. She agrees with Dr. D'Souza. We'll likely see an increase in COVID cases. Not only that, but she also says we need to prepare in case there's another surge. Congress is still debating whether to approve further COVID-19 funding for vaccines and testing. I do think the lack of funding will have a large effect on control of the pandemic. You know, I want to stress people, you know, throughout the past two years, the vaccines, because these vaccines were paid for with taxpayer dollars, Um, have been free to everybody who wants a vaccine. Testing has been free to people who want a vaccine. Dr. Durbin says we need to start being proactive about investing in pandemic prevention. When COVID came around, we were not prepared. So now is not the time to back off on funding. Now is the time to really cement that funding and think about the future and prevention, not just of COVID, but of future pandemics that are surely going to come. There's also the immunocompromised who are still at high risk. And children five years old and younger still aren't eligible for vaccines, though that may change in the coming months. Experts hope Pfizer will get FDA approval for vaccinating that age group sometime in April. And Moderna announced last week that it's seeking emergency use authorization of its vaccine for younger children. As for a second booster for seniors, both experts agree it's too soon to tell. Dr. Durbin says we'll have an answer in time for the winter. I would agree. More is not always better. So we do need to have the data to answer this question. For the first booster, the third shot, the data is resoundingly clear. We know it is very helpful in uh, protecting against severe illness. The question of whether a second booster or a fourth shot will be needed is something that the data will be able to answer. Beyond the next BA2 spike, Dr. D'Souza says she is confident that next year, if not this year, we will see some stabilization away from the cycle of waves and declines. We may have a sustained level of severe illness that is higher than many of us in public health would like to see. 
Um, but I do think the worst is behind us in the U.S. We do really have made incredible progress, and um, I'm very hopeful for what is to come this year. Dr. Amber D'Souza is an infectious disease epidemiologist and professor of epidemiology at the Bloomberg School of Public Health. Dr. Anna Durbin is the director of the Center for Immunization Research at Bloomberg. Even as vaccines have been available for more than a year and have been proven effective, hesitancy remains. A project by the Johns Hopkins Center for Communications Programs in collaboration with two universities and Facebook is gathering data about how people around the globe have made decisions about safeguarding their health during the pandemic. The COVID Behavior Dashboard began collecting data from more than 28 million individual survey responses in May of 2021. Dominique Shattuck is an associate scientist at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health and one of the principal investigators of the dashboard. He talked to On the Record about how they are using the social media tool to gather useful behavioral data. This is a really interesting process. So uh, because we don't want to link these data with any of the data that someone has on their Facebook profile, um, actually Facebook runs advertisements and those advertisements are uh, soliciting for individuals to join the survey. And so if they decide to click on that survey, they're pushed to an outside server that is either run by uh, Carnegie Mellon, if they're in the United States, or the University of Maryland, if they're anywhere else in the world. Um, And so uh, their data is from that point, it's completely independent of Facebook. Uh, They've they've kind of gone through this process and they get into the funnel of being enrolled in the process of uh, answering the survey questions. According to the CDC, over 80 percent of people over age five have received at least one dose of vaccine. Shattuck says their survey shows the obstacle of vaccine hesitancy here and across the globe fall into three main categories. They're kind of internal, right, internal to people's uh, kind of perceptions of the vaccine and, and how it might affect them. So one of the visualizations that we have actually presents uh, these these in bubble, what we call a bubble graph. Uh, and they fall into uh, several different categories. But the three main ones are concerns. People are concerned about the side effects. Uh, they, they are concerned that they possibly don't know whether or not the vaccine is, will actually work or they want to wait and see if the vaccine is actually safe. So, you know, as many people know, the research is out there. The vaccines are safe. Uh, there, there are there are some side effects, but they're very manageable side effects uh, for, for the wide majority of people who get the vaccine. So these concerns are out there and, and, and oftentimes, you know, some of the messaging and not, these dashboards are really targeting people who are delivering messages in different countries. Uh, and so understanding what these fears and concerns are can help to shape the messages uh, and, and make them more effective moving forward. Shattuck says they have some evidence showing that for those who are vaccine hesitant, a familiarity with someone they know or respect who has gotten vaccinated can prompt a change in thinking and behavior. Sometimes it's the people around you, someone who around you who is who has gotten the vaccine. But when we asked this question, we we didn't really get into like personal relationships per se. Uh, We asked about some of the big kind of information sharers like the WHO, the ministries of health in in various countries, uh, as well as like politicians and and religious leaders. Um, And by and large, from the global audience, 
when, when information comes from the WHO, it is often seen as very, uh, you know, credit, credit, it has high credibility, a lot of trust associated with that information, as well as if it's coming from scientists and researchers. Although there is a lot of misinformation out there and there's efforts to kind of challenge some of these data, there is also uh, a lot of good information that's been out there and tailored to certain audiences so that they can uh, absorb it and kind of take it in in a more comprehensive uh, and influential way. Johns Hopkins has been collecting data daily for its COVID-19 dashboard from Facebook users who are directed to their survey since May of 2021. And Shattuck says data on the information that people globally are craving really stood out to him. The interest around mental health and mental wellness uh, and how that is something that is being brought up by participants all over the world. It's not something that is American-centric or, or European-centric in this idea of wellness and mental well-being. Um, I think there are a lot of stressors. I think this reflects a high level of stress and challenges for a lot of people. Um, we have data that's not on the dashboard actually around um, anxiety and feelings of depression um, that you can get if you download the entire data set and, and analyze that. We have some briefs on our webpage around that as well. Um, and that's something that, you know, to, to see this at kind of that global level of the stress and the strain that the pandemic has placed a lot of people under, it has been very fascinating to me. It very it identifies a real public health challenge. The other area where I think it's very interesting is this idea of people not getting vaccinated due to safety concerns and concerns about side effects. You know, the, the pandemic is paralleled by an infodemic in this challenge of having all mis- a lot of misinformation being posted and shared on social media platforms uh, and the dynamics related to that and their impact on people's choice is real and significant. So those two things really stand out for me. You can learn more about the COVID-19 dashboard and the Johns Hopkins collaboration with Carnegie Mellon and the University of Maryland by going to on the record at wypr.org. We're always happy to hear from you, and we'll be here for you again on Wednesday. The Daily Dose is brought to you by WYPR, made possible by GBMC Healthcare. Big thanks to my news team colleagues, Rachel Bay, John Lee, Joel McCord, and Callan Hensel Suddeth. Our digital content director is Jamila Krempel, and our general manager is LaFontaine Oliver. The executive editor of The Daily Dose is Danielle Irby. Stay healthy, stay sane, and stand together. I'm Sarah Y. Kim. Thanks for listening.